Hey everyone, Dr. Pat and I would personally like to invite you to join us in our Grow My Baby program. This is week-by-week pregnancy and birth information developed from our experience of helping more than 4,000 women grow and birth their babies. All our links are on our website, growmybaby.com.au. The information in this podcast is provided for education and research information only. It is not a substitute for professional health advice. If you're trying to get pregnant or you are pregnant and you feel a little bit overwhelmed by all you need to know, then this is the right podcast for you. Welcome to the show. I'm Bridget Maloney. And I'm obstetrician Dr. Patrick Maloney. And this is The Kick, your expert-led podcast that delivers the essentials of growing a baby. Make sure you head to our website, growmybaby.com.au, to get some awesome free tools like our Pregnancy Knowledge Checker to help you feel like you got this. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Bridget Maloney. And I'm obstetrician Dr. Patrick Maloney. And today, Pat, we're going to do a Q&A. I love Q&As. I love Q&As. I love hearing the little voices coming down the speak pipe. (laughs) And actually, um, a good point was made to us where... It's all females that call in, uh, which is absolutely fantastic. But if your partner uh, would like to also send a speak pipe, then put Get on it. put him or her on. That yep. would be fantastic. Yep. So non-birthing partners and dads and you know, men, we'd love to hear from you. Yep. Mm. Good. All right. So we've got a few speak pipes and then a few questions. So who to choose? How about we choose... Steph. Hi there. I'm calling from Canada. I love your podcast. Um, so I am nearly five months pregnant and I have a trip to France and cruise planned in September. My OB said it was fine. Um, I just want to hear about your thoughts about traveling um, during second trimester pregnancy. I'll be between 26 to 28 weeks pregnant. Thanks so much. Great. Brilliant question. What a great trip. Off to France. Not bad for those Canadians. (laughs) Uh, La-di-da. Yeah, this is a ripper because people ask us this all the time. Mm. Uh, Travel in pregnancy. So I've got a few thoughts on that. Um, There's nothing wrong with planning a trip in pregnancy. It's fine. It's air travel, you know, it's safe in pregnancy. Um, If you are going to do a longer trip then there's a few things that uh, are important to take into consideration. Uh, and one is that airlines will have rules about about people travelling at the very end of pregnancy. And even if you're within their usual restrictions and they say you don't need a letter, I think you do. I think I've definitely had people been told that they didn't need a letter saying they were safe to fly from their, from their dock or midwife. And then they got to the airport and were told they did need a letter. Mm. So uh, I think if you're pregnant and you're flying, um, you should take a letter even if you've been told that you don't need one. And the next thing is uh, if you haven't been pregnant before, it's hard to imagine how you're going to feel in the last 10 weeks. Mm. Yeah. So I always say to people, by all means, go on a trip. Um, have some time in the sun if you're, you know, going from cold climate to a warm place, all of those things. But getting that all done by about 32 weeks is a really good idea. Mm. Um, pe- people, as they approach full term, often feel, you know, what they call nasty, a bit, a bit like mm. they want to stay home, keep warm, wash all the clothes that people have given them, get the baby's room ready, stay close to care, mm. and be. Uh, 
and that's not just a that's just not a, a, a organizational reality it's just a way you kind of feel on the inside that, you, that you're not keen and the best way to have a break at that stage might be stay home so uh, plan it before perhaps 32 weeks mm. yeah yeah we we actually do get uh, questions about baby moons and things like that and yeah 32 weeks is probably um, the limit really because yeah, you, you're you start, uncomfortable you feel uncomfortable yeah. and what's the point we went um, we actually had our honeymoon when I was I'm gonna say, 30 weeks pregnant, yep. like quite pregnant. And we went right up to the north of Australia, up to Lizard Island, and we are on a little little uh, four-seater plane or something. I'm like, what are we doing? <laughs> I was having a good time. <laughs> no, that's right. Yeah, that, well, that's probably, yeah, absolutely. And I don't, I think any lady you wouldn't have enjoyed it. Yeah. yeah. No, that's it. And I think I only felt safe because I was actually travelling with a husband obstetrician. I wouldn't have done that otherwise. It's too remote. Yeah, fair it, enough. It felt too remote, yeah. 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 All right. Well, um, I think, Steph, you can um, head off. 28 weeks is Enjoy perfect yourself. time. Sounds perfect. Perfect. And just um, make sure your insurance is… Yep. Travel insurance, critical for, you know, critical. international. And um, and then and the other thing I often say to my patients uh, um, is uh, if you're somebody, if you're somewhere um, very remote uh, in pregnancy or somewhere in a developing country and you're worried about, you know, where are you going to get um, the, the health care that you might be expecting at home, you know, you've got a phone, get on the phone back to the team that are already looking after you. Yeah. And say, look, I'm, I'm overseas. This is happening to me. What do you think? Yeah. And sometimes it's a, sometimes I get phone calls from my patients from all over the place when they're away. And sometimes it's nothing, I can, something I can talk them around over the phone and ch- check out when they get back. Yeah. And so it's them find, find, spending a whole day wherever they are trying to find, uh, find advice. Yeah, that's right. And yeah. Oh gosh. I'm glad that you pointed that out. Yeah. I forgot about that. Good. All right. Well, I want to now read one. Good. This is, oh, I'll say anonymous. I'm not sure whether she wanted to be anonymous or not. I would love to hear your thoughts on doulas. They seem to be gaining popularity, but are there worse outcomes with a doula than someone who follows an OB midwife? It scares me how little training they have and how they think they know more than an OB. Yeah, okay. Doulas. Doulas, you don't know how to answer that, do you? No, no, it's a big one. No, it's fine. Uh, look, a doula is a, is a, a support person um, during pregnancy care and labour. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's a concept that's been around for thousands of years. There were, some, there were some people even in primitive communities who were the person who sort of you know, looked after you in, in labour and had some wisdom from experience. Even in primitive communities, thousand years ago that, that didn't base pregnancy care on science. Yeah? Mm. The role of a doula in modern day pregnancy care in Australia is mostly as someone who is there for emotional support and is there for is, is there to help the woman get the outcome from the pregnancy that she's looking for mm. and the outcome from the labour that she's looking for and occasionally to help that person interact with the system and advocate for their needs within the system. So all of that sounds like a really good idea, and mostly it is. Uh, I think in Australia the most potentially useful time to have a doula in labour would be within the public healthcare system where people feel that their personal preferences uh, might be overlooked in the big machine that a public hospital can be Mm. and that they might need Yes, the support and assistance and help of a of a doula to 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 work their way through that system. I think that can 
be fine. It's an added expense for people. It's not something that's provided for within the public system, so you have to find that person and pay for them yourself. I must admit, within the private system, if a, if a, if a private patient of mine who I know very well and are seeing 15, 16 times during the pregnancy and who I'm personally going to be there during the labour, if those women tell me that they want help from a doula, my first thought is why? Mm. <laughs> does, that, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so um, they might have a perfectly reasonable argument in favour of that, and of course I'm not going to say no, uh, but if they say it's because I'm very, very scared and I, I need this extra person to help me out, then I need to know that. I need to know that that person is that scared yeah. and work out whether we whether I could be better doing a better job or the private hospital could be doing a better job to provide that woman with the support that she needs without her needing to go to the, the additional expense. Mm, or perhaps, you know, she needs some pre-work with a mental health social worker or a psychologist or... Absolutely. Yeah. And if that person has found, perhaps on the basis of having a previous negative experience with the healthcare system or a previous birth that didn't go according to plan and they feel well supported by having a doula, that's fine. Mm. It works better than you think it would in terms of in terms of kind of uh, whose who's department is what and if there's open and free communication. Yeah. So the, the few times I've had patients in the private sector with a doula present, I've, it's been good to meet that person yeah, first. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I've found the people I've dealt with to be very reasonable. Yeah, yeah, and it might be that that person's choosing to have a doula because they want to labour at home and they want to feel safer labouring at home. They just don't want to labour with their partner or. Uh, well, the, yeah. Well, there's two. There's two issues there. The the point of a doula is not to provide medical care. So so that person. Uh, if, if you want to labour at home, you you might be better off in the care of a home birth midwife. Oh yeah, than a doula. I didn't mean birth at home. I just meant you know just to be there mm, while you're labouring. Yeah. Even so, yeah. Even so, the doula's not there to tell you when to go to the hospital. Right. Okay. So that yeah, they might come around your house and start helping you with breathing and all those sort of things. But anyone who's labouring at home with the intention of coming into the hospital later on should keep in touch with the midwives at their birthing hospital mm. to help get phone advice from the midwives, not from the doula, about when to come to the hospital. Mm. Make sense? Yeah, yeah. And then the you mentioned you said something else they might feel Oh yeah, about the partner. Partner, yeah. Yeah. Some people who want a doula it's because they don't trust their partner yeah, to yeah. be of any great use in labour. And that is okay. That's a thing. Mm. If you know that that person is not going to be a great mopper of brows and bringer of glasses of water and so forth, because you know your partner well and you know that they're not going to be the support person that you need, then you've got to bring your partner wants to be there, but you need to also bring your sister or your mother or a doula. Mm. Yeah. All right. And Somebody who'll be a good support person and not just somebody who needs to support themselves. Mm. Yeah. And I'm not sure that they're gaining popularity. The, the thing that we see is there's a definite sort of imbalance on things such as social media between who is on social media oh, and yeah. who isn't. Yeah. So uh, there isn't many obstetricians on social media. You know, compared to the amount of obstetricians there are. Yes, but there's lots of doulas, so they'll tell you that yeah. they're gaining in popularity in the real world now about the same. Yeah, so yeah. I think that's that. What is it that, um, what's that bias where you see it all the time? There's a bias towards thinking that there's more and more doulas, but it's just really. You're, you're hearing yeah. about it more. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to get another speak pipe up, Pat. Let's listen to this one. Hi, Bridget and Dr. Pat. Um, my name is Dragana um, and I had my first baby, my baby boy, on the 1st of June, so I am no longer pregnant. Um, 
I was the person that was being induced um, at 38 weeks and I had the BMI question and thank you so much for that. My question right now is a gynae-related question. Um, I'd like to know, what does a period look like post-birth um, and whether that is after you've had a, uh, a vaginal delivery or a C-section? Thank you so much. I thought I recognised the voice. I mean, the name. Now she's got two. <laughs> well done, Dragana. <laughs> well done for getting through twice. That's that's very impressive. Yeah, good. So return to normal period mm. after after um, labour. Yeah. yeah. So first of June. Yeah. Yep. So in the first six weeks, don't matter whether you had a vaginal birth or a cesarean section, um, there'll be some irregular uh, bleeding over that six weeks, which is normal. And the things that you should look out for. Uh, that that over the course of the whole six weeks, it's roughly heading in the right direction, okay, roughly getting less, um, and that if there's heavy bleeding, it's not associated with fevers, night sweats, or feeling like you've got the flu, okay? Um, otherwise, that bleeding is normal. In terms of when an actual real period starts again, well, a real period will follow ovulation, and whether you ov- when you ovulate uh, depends on whether you're breastfeeding or not. Mm and whether you've gone on to any artificial contraception at that point. So let's say you are breastfeeding, you may not ovulate until you finish, Mm. and you may not menstruate at all. If you are not breastfeeding, then a period will return about six weeks after the birth, and it can be temporarily heavier than you used to expect, but will settle back down reasonably quickly in most cases to be the old period you had before you got pregnant in the first place. How many cycles do you think before it settles back into its previous cycles? Three or four. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that that, yeah, and, I, and those people, people sort of um, expect that. What some people really don't expect is that they won't menstruate normally while they're breastfeeding. Mm. So it's, it's interesting to me that people, that, that a lot of people don't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they haven't listened to our breastfeeding episode. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to The Kick with Dr. Pat and Bridget. How many times have you Googled something about your pregnancy? When I was pregnant all the time, Dr. Pat. <laughs> we get it. You may be confused or overwhelmed. It's normal to want information, but where's the reliable stuff from experts? Yeah. Now, if you like our podcast... Dr. Pat and I have developed an online program to help guide you through whatever stage of pregnancy you're at. It's taken us literally two years to put it together. Two long, hard years, wasn't it? (laughs) But, you know, it is a game changer in how pregnancy information is given. Now, how it works is uh, you get to sign up at whatever stage of pregnancy you're at. Like, So you could be pre-pregnant, in your very early stages of pregnancy, late pregnancy, preparing for birth, or maybe you've just brought your baby home. And you get lots of information around that. And then you also get to join our closed Facebook group. We've called in all our contacts too. So we've got a dietitian, an anaesthetist, physiotherapist. Sonographer. Yeah, who else? A pediatric nurse, obstetrician, mother of four. Oh, just all the people you need to hear from. So if that's you, come and join us at www.growmybaby.com.au. <laughs> yeah, so look, you know, that, and the, I mean, these are these are uh, common questions. And if you go on some sort of artificial contraception, like let's say, for example, you're breastfeeding and you go on a marina, then you may not return to menstruation at all mm. um, because you're not breastfeeding, you're not getting much 
uh, menstruation, not not getting much bleeding because you're breastfeeding, and then the marina also inhibits menstruation, and and you might get nothing at all. Mm. If you if you are um, not breastfeeding and you go back on a combined pill, the ordinary two hormone pill, then you'll get withdrawal bleeds. In the, in the red section of the pill packet. Mm. Oh, well, congratulations, Dragana, and, and congratulations. your baby. How fantastic. Well done. Just one more thing. You're only going to go back to the menstrual pattern that you used to have in the fullness of time. If that old pattern was normal, fantastic. If the old pattern was abnormal, like your periods were irregular or very heavy, you're very likely to go back to where you were. Mm. Yeah. And what's done about that really depends on what your plans are for future pregnancies. Yeah. Okay, Pat, I've got um, this one now. I'm sure if she introduces herself. Hey guys, my name's Annabelle. I'm 20 weeks pregnant. I just have a question about elective cesarean. I know you've spoken a lot about it uh, compared to natural birth and the recovery time and the risks um, of both and why you might have or not have uh, an elective cesarean. But I just wondered, I'm struggling to see kind of why if you are in a private health fund and do have the opportunity to have an elective cesarean, why you wouldn't do that. Um, From lots of friends and family stories, a lot of natural births do end up becoming um, emergency C-sections and therefore you've already gone through potentially quite a lot of trauma Um, and when you've spoken about um, elective caesareans before, you've mentioned that uh, it's quite organized, it's calm, you know the date, um, all the sort of expectations are set and although you have a potential six-week recovery, um, it still sounds like a safer or better option compared to what could potentially go wrong, uh, or not go wrong, but what could potentially happen in a natural birth. So I was just hoping you could shed a little more light on that. Um, To me, it kind of just seems like it would be a better choice to go elective caesarean. Uh, But yeah, really interested to hear more if you can. Thank you. It's only a minute 30. That's why they get oh, cut, get off, cut yeah. off. I think that was thank you. <laughs> you got to you speak your piece in the in the, in uh, minute in the, 30 you've in got. the peace pipe. All right, good. Um, cracker of a question. Wasn't it? Um, and, uh, and quite a brave question. It is I'd a say. brave question, yeah. right? There's someone who knows that they're not kind of supposed to ask that, but they've asked it anyway. Mm. I love that. Yeah, that yeah. That's fantastic. I get what the caller is asking. Yeah. And. I understand the question. I want to take up one little thing where at that she said towards the end that it sounds safer. Safer's a is it's important to pick up on that because that's not actually right. A planned cesarean section with no medical indication is not safer than a well conducted vaginal birth. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So um, yeah, it's going to be safer than a than than a poorly conducted vaginal birth or a or a vaginal birth in a developing country with no doctors and no hospitals, but it's not safer in our community than a well conducted, safely conducted, appropriately monitored vaginal birth. And is that because of the risks of the actual surgery or the recovery? Well, there's a few risks of the surgery that don't apply if you have the baby vaginally. They're small, but a safely well conducted vaginal birth in Australia in 2023, has few risks Mm. anyway because if it's going poorly, we can switch over to Caesar quickly, efficiently and safely. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's not quite accurate to say that that is safer. 
I, I think what, what the call is getting at is that she's heard about a number of people who've set out to have vaginal births. It hasn't um, gone according to plan. They've wound up with emergency sections which they've found traumatic. And hidden in the question, I think, is a little bit of bias in that that person in their sample of 20 women that they know has identified a number of people where it's gone poorly. But as we know, across the board, uh, most people who set out to have a vaginal birth at term do have a vaginal birth. Does that make sense? Yeah. I thought it was only 30% that have a vaginal. Oh, no, no, 60% assisted birth, yeah. 66%. 66%, yeah. yeah. So so fully two-thirds will have have a vaginal birth at term, Mm -hmm. although around half of those might be assisted. Yeah. Yeah, this is first babies we're talking about. Yeah. And then those people coming into their second pregnancy and third and fourth have a very, very high rate of vaginal birth mm. because if they got that baby out vaginally the first time around, they're set up for a very good obstetric career from then on. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I love that she's asked this question. I wish she had have asked it, you know, about two months ago when, um, because we've already put that episode out and I want you to go back and have a listen to it, Annabelle. The pros and cons yes. of vaginal and cesarean birth. Yeah. And have, yeah. a, have a listen through that. Like that was a um, big long episode. Sorry about that. But um, yeah, have a listen through that and that might help you with your decisions. Yeah. So all of those provisos aside, mm. it, at the core of the question might be, if it's right for me, can I have a planned section if that's what I want? And I think the answer is yes. Yeah. I think the horse is bolted on that in Australia. Mm. And I don't think we should be saying no to people who want a planned section with no medical indication. There's no medical reasons to do it. It's just what they want. I think after appropriate counselling of the risks and the benefits and after offering that person a safely carefully monitored vaginal birth with immediate conversion to a section in the case of a problem, if that person says, nope, don't even want to try that vaginal birth, I want to seize it from the get-go, ultimately I believe we should be saying yes to that person in both the private and public sectors. Mm. But that's a political hot potato. It really is. And Mm. and like women are made to feel bad Mm. basically in some of the systems if they're asked, if they're asking to have a planned section. Yes. Mm. The other thing that the caller needs to remember is that that is that most people most people not not her apparently but most most people do want a vaginal birth Mm. term and do set out with that as their primary goal so the caller can't see what the fuss is all about yeah yeah, good on you like good on you if that's right run your race yeah yeah. run your race exactly if that's right for you that's fine but but don't be don't be surprised if people question that if people question the wisdom of that decision because I think the majority of first-timers feel differently. Yes, I think that needs examining. I know that's a much bigger sort of question, but I wonder where that comes from too. You know, that could be societal pressure. It could be familial pressure. You know, I felt a lot of pressure to have my babies vaginally. Yes, and when some I, self-imposed, some yeah, externally imposed. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So we don't know exactly whether everybody goes, oh, that is my heartfelt desire. I need to have a vaginal birth. It kind of was mine. Mm. <laughs> but, you know, we just, we just don't know. Yeah. It could be that yeah. that is coming from different pressures. Yeah, in I'm life. not sure about the reasons why, but I think as it stands, the mm. majority of people, healthy women, first-time pregnancy, are looking for a vaginal birth at mm. term and, and, and good on them. That's fine. We don't want to talk anybody out of that. Mm. But I think in 2023, if on due reflection, well informed of the pros and cons, you think that a planned section is the right thing for you, 
it's my humble belief that that should be on offer. Yeah. Thank you so much, Annabelle, for asking that question. It was well a Well done, cracker. Okay, Patty, you got time for one more? I do. Oh, yep. good, 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 good. Alrighty, so this is anonymous. Hi, guys. My partner is a carrier of CF, cystic fibrosis. So we did some genetic testing to see if I was. Luckily, I'm not. However, to my surprise, I found out that I am a carrier of an X-linked genetic condition called EDA, ectodermal dysplasia, and a recessive genetic condition, limb girdle muscular dystrophy. I'm so overwhelmed with the findings. I had no idea. I have spoken with a genetic counsellor about options for my future pregnancies. I remember in one of your past podcasts, you said genetic testing was close to your hearts. I wanted to ask why was that and what advice do you have for me? Thanks. Great. Another good one. Mm. Yeah. This this idea of getting tested before your pregnancy is close to our hearts only because it's heartbreaking for everybody, obviously the patients, but the carers as well. Um, if uh, somebody has a baby with a serious genetic um, issue and it's the first they ever knew that they were a carrier for that condition. Mm. And obviously, if you look at something like cystic fibrosis where you and your partner both have to be carriers, that neither of you had any idea, Mm. there are tests available is all I'm saying. Mm. Okay, so you you can have that test beforehand if it suits you to have it and you can can know Mm. and it's then possible if you're at risk um, to have an IVF pregnancy and only use the embryos that don't have the disease mm. and still have the desi- – it's a bit of mucking around, but you, but you still have the desired family size without any babies with the full-blown disease. Yeah. Okay. It's it's loading all the the big decisions up front when you're not even pregnant Yeah. before – if you were pregnant, oh, no, right. finding out, you yeah. know, the decisions to do, say, a medical termination or, yeah, all of that. you know, having a baby that only survives for a couple of hours or any mm. of that is, is – And it might be obvious to people who know that they're in a cystic fibrosis family, they've got a brother with CF or a cousin, but um, lots of people in this situation, they just don't know. And that recessive gene has existed in their family for generations, mm. but nobody has known about it. The test is there. Um, how people feel about it in terms of whether they want to take it up or not is a different matter, but it, the test does exist. And, and we want people to know that it's there if they want it. Mm. Yeah. So what's happened in the caller's case is that she's had a, a broader test that's tested her not only for the for those big three, so fragile X, spinal muscular atrophy, and cystic fibrosis, but a broader test that's mm. tested her for a whole bunch of other genetic conditions as well. And this is good, but there is so much, there is such a thing as too much information. Yeah. I mean, we might be all carrying, We would, yeah. yeah. So if we all got screened in a broad enough test, we would find out that we were carriers for all sorts of diseases that you'd never heard of. Mm. And they might be things that that the chances of you ever have an, an actual baby with that actual disease uh, minuscule. Mm. Okay. Now this is where genetic counselors come in. So you can go and get the, you can take your result and you can speak to the genetic counselor and the genetic counselor will know the, how the genetics of that disease works. Mm. Recessive, dominant, X-linked. And then they will be able to talk to you about whether there's value in testing your partner. And eventually they can give you information about what's the mathematical chance of you actually having a baby with the disease in question. Mm. There'll probably come a point in this whole process where we agree as a community that too much information yeah. is. We might be getting too much information um, and worrying about stuff that's never going to happen. Yeah, and yeah. it really tests how risk averse you are. So, Absolutely. you know, are you worried about something that's one in 100? 
Yes. Are you worried about what something that's one in one thousand or one yeah. in a hundred thousand? Like you know, all of those things you and your partner have to agree. Big big conversations, aren't yeah. they? Yeah. Yeah. And if you graft sort of increased certainty versus increased anxiety mm. on these things, there might be a sweet spot somewhere. Mm. Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons why why the the, the first really significant form of fetal um, uh, testing was related to Down syndrome was because it's common. Mm. It's um, babies with Down syndrome are often born alive, so they, they don't they don't necessarily miscarry. They're often born alive, and um, that's going to have lifelong consequences for that person and that person's family. So they sort of concentrated on that disease. But there are zillions yeah. of, of genetic um, um, uh, conditions, mm. and uh, which are worth testing for yeah. is the is the big question, and you know this is one of the um, this has always been one of the of the more interesting interfaces between between the everyday experience of of pregnancy and childbirth and the interaction of that with science. Mm. As science often runs the, the ability of science to do things will often run miles ahead of the community's knowledge about whether we should whether we be doing want, it or yeah. not. Yeah. <laughs> that is so true. Yeah. Um, I, I want to touch on what you said about um, your genetic counsellor could tell you whether you know you need to go on to IVF or something like that. And something that you've said so many times, I just want to reiterate it, is that if you've got no other fertility issues, the IVF journey is usually easier, better, oh, faster. Oh, yeah, 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 that's right. People think, oh, God, what if my IVF doesn't work? But if you're not infertile... And you're using IVF for a reason, like to get around a genetic disease, then it almost always works. First cycle, nearly. oh well, maybe yeah. because you're not being held back by whatever was making you infertile in the first place. Yeah, you know, if you look at overall IVF success rates, the live-born baby rate is being dragged dragged down by the fact that that these are people with a problem. Mm. So, so lots of people are have severe endometriosis, and lots of people are a bit old, and. And so that drags the success rate down. Mm. But if everyone having IVF was 21 years old and was just doing it to make sure they didn't have a baby with cystic fibrosis, then the IVF success rates would be would be extremely... 100%. <laughs> almost, yeah, yeah. Yeah, good. Makes sense. Certainly does. All right, everyone, they are... That's enough, isn't it? Well, look, well, we've got some more, but next week, next month, we'll... we'll we love it. Yeah. yeah. We'll so get back to We want to hear from more speak pipe people. And, and your birth partners. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be really fun. Very, very comfortable getting that. Good. All right, everyone, have a fabulous week and thank you so much. We really appreciate your time uh, listening to us and all your DMs and your support and uh, we hope that you have a really fantastic week. All the best, everybody. Bye, Bye for now.